uh, different. Last Sunday night I talked about the Tower of Babel and tried to fit that into the larger scheme of what God is doing and uh, likened that unto the gift of tongues where God confounded language at the Tower of Babel and then gave the miraculous ability to speak a multitude of languages at Pentecost and what he was doing in bringing a people unto himself. Now, a number of positive comments from that message, so it got me thinking about uh, the importance of understanding the meta narratives of Scripture. So, tonight, we're going to consider the importance of realizing how the narratives of the Scriptures are important to the meta narrative of Scripture. A narrative is an individual story, a meta narrative is the large overarching story. For example, a narrative might be the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, for example, a meta-narrative might be how the Battle of Gettysburg is, fits into the story of the Civil War. So, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg has value in and of itself, but it's much more meaningful to think of Gettysburg in light of all of the Civil War. A still greater narrative is how the narrative of the Civil War fits into the history of the United States. And so, as you work your way out, you find that these individual stories have a great impact over a great period of time. Most often the narratives or stories of the Bible are studied as isolated or standalone events. They're viewed just as stories in and of themselves and they are divorced from any greater narrative and certainly divorced from the overall meta-narrative of the overarching teaching of the scriptures. This usually results in a moralistic application. For example, the story of David and Goliath might teach us how that through faith we can conquer the giants in our lives. The story of Achan teaches us that to be sure your sin will find you out. Or the story of Daniel might teach us that faithfulness to God will be rewarded in the end. But if that is all that we do with the Bible, narratives, stories, in reality, it does not matter if they are true or not. Okay, they become these individual little narratives or stories that teach us some moral truth. So the Bible becomes a glorified Aesop's fables. If this moralistic approach that gives credence to using the Bible, even if it isn't inspired, you see, because it really doesn't matter if it's inspired or not. It doesn't matter if the story is true. It's just a story, and it's a story to teach us a moral lesson. It teaches us a moral truth. But whether or not it's historically accurate, in reality, is insignificant. And that's how people that don't believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God still teach it week after week and still tell the stories and still perpetuate certain aspects of its teaching. But more than that, it individualizes the Bible so that everything becomes about us. Okay? It's always ending up about us and an application to us and, and uh, how we should live and how we should act. It's important to understand how the narratives of Scripture fit into the meta-narrative of redemptive history. To see that history is not just circular, that is, history repeats itself, and we've all heard that. History is also linear. It's moving to God-ordained purpose and end. 
All right, it, there, there is going to be an end to this world. It isn't just a matter of constantly repeating itself. And that comes out even in philo philosophical understandings of life, okay? Uh, we don't believe in reincarnation. We don't believe that we're coming back in another form and then coming back in another form after that and then coming back in another form after that. But we continue on for an eternity future. All right, so the, so the scripture is, is linear. It is moving towards a destinated end in which the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to reign on this earth and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. We are on a trajectory. Well, tonight we're going to consider the life of Joseph and how the stories of Joseph's life fit into the meta-narrative of redemptive history. So I'm going to use Joseph as an example and take what oftentimes are these individualistic moral stories and talk about how they are much more than just moral stories of how we should live, although they're not less than that. Okay? Certainly, we learn from these, these stories of how we should live, how we, we should respond, uh, how should we conduct ourselves. But it's bigger than that. It, it, it demonstrates for us a reason. Okay? Why it's important how we live. Why it's important that we respond the way we do in the uh, adherence to Scripture. Now, I want to apologize up front because tonight requires a lot of Bible knowledge. I'm going to refer to these Bible stories, but I'm not going to explain them at all. I'm going to assume tonight that you know the story of Joseph and you know it well. Okay? I'm going to assume that you understand about his being sold into slavery. I'm going to understand that you understand his rise to power. I'm going to assume that you understand how, as a result of his rising unto power, that multitudes were fed. I'm going to assume you understand about the famine and all these things. Okay? I've got a huge bunch of assumptions tonight because I want to be able to look beyond those individual stories. I don't have time to tell all the stories tonight. I want to draw the thread that runs through them all so that we can better understand redemptive history and then say, how do we fit into this timeline of redemptive history? So number one, the story of Joseph's brothers, hatred for Joseph served a greater purpose than just revealing the miseries of a dysfunctional family. They certainly do that, but much more. The brothers were acting in animosity towards evil, towards Joseph, Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. All right, it's a story of how these brothers uh, hated uh, Joseph. They were jealous of him and Joseph's relationship to his father, the coat of many colors. You know the story. But God was achieving a far greater purpose. But God meant it for good to bring you about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Um, that, again, is a well-known verse, and that is something probably that most people are aware of and can understand that greater picture. But there's more to it than that. Number two, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery and taken to Egypt served a greater purpose than merely describing the anguish and sorrows that a child of God may have to endure. It's more than just about how life is unfair and how if you've got miserable brothers, sometimes they treat you in ways that are unjust and uh, create for you a lot of hardship and agony. It's more than that. 
Long before Joseph or his brothers were born, God had told Abraham that his descendants would have to go to Egypt for a period of 400 years and eventually be enslaved. Genesis 15, 13. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Thus the story of Judah keeping his brothers from killing Joseph and instead selling them into slavery was in reality the fulfilling of God's sovereign plan. It isn't just an accident. It isn't just, oh wow, isn't that interesting that the brothers are debating about what to happen for Joseph. And they're going to kill him. But Judah intervenes and says, well, don't kill him. And they put him into a pit, and then they pull him out of a pit, and then they sold him into slavery. Um, that was the, the sovereign will of God, that he would not die, that he would be taken into a land of Egypt. That was planned and understood in the time of Abraham. Three, the story of Joseph rising to power is more than just a story of God rewarding faithful servants. It's the story of God sovereignly raising up and establishing leaders to accomplish his will. Genesis 41, 39 to 41. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. It's referring to the dream that Joseph had, excuse me, the dream that uh, Pharaoh had concerning the years of plenty followed by the years of famine. And remember, no one could interpret that dream. And so we had the story of the butler and of the baker and how uh, one is killed, the other is kept alive. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't understand what this dream means and then the uh, the uh, butler says, oh, I, I remember there was a, a person when I was in prison. His name was Joseph. Uh, he could interpret dreams. Uh, and so the king uh, sends for Joseph and he interprets this dream. And so the Pharaoh understands what God can do. Since God has shown you this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards the throne, and I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. He views this as his decision, but understands that God's behind it. Well, this is more than just, oh, isn't that wonderful? And here is Joseph. He was faithful. He put up with a, a great deal of un, unjustness and unfairness. And God sees that and now raises him to a place of power. It's bigger than that. Number four, the story of Joseph forgiving his brothers is more than a story of the grace of God that is needed uh, to forgive those who have wronged us. It's a story of God preserving the remnant of his people. You see, it isn't just there to teach us that we need to forgive those that do mean things to us. While it is true, we need to forgive those that do mean things for us. It's bigger than that. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for many survivors. God sent me into Egypt in order that his people, your descendants, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren would be kept alive. This has significance for generations to come. God sent me here to preserve your 
children's lives. But they would not die in the famine. Five, the story of the famine is greater than a story of how trying times come into the lives of his people. It's even greater than a story of how the Israelites came to live in Egypt. It's even greater than a story of God, how God provided for the Israelites, these descendants of his brothers. It's a story how that God provided for all the nations. Verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain. Verse 57, because the famine was severe in all the earth. It's a story how, how God summoned people from all over the face of the earth to come to Egypt. How God was able to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to the land of Egypt. Remember, I, I mentioned last Sunday night that God has the ability both to bring people to us and to scatter us to reach the world. Here is God bringing the world to Joseph. God bringing the world to experience God's grace, God's goodness, to actually be able to taste of God's goodness by eating the food that God provides. I don't have the time to get into all that tonight, but it's also a story how before God brings judgment, he makes his, nation, his name known. Before God judges these nations by taking the land of Canaan and by uh, accomplishing his persons, persons, before he does that, he reveals to them his goodness his grace, and his power to deliver. All because of this famine and the food that's going to be given to all the nations that come. That's a part of the story. Number six, there's a story of how God made his glory and goodness known before God brought judgment upon the nations. Genesis 15, 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, back to this prophetic portion, long before Joseph was alive. Know for certain that your offspring will so, be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That judgment was not yet coming, for the people's sinfulness had not been fully manifested. Genesis 15, 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This iniquity of the Amorites is the judgment that's coming on the land of Canaan. These uh, Amorites are dwelling in the land of Canaan. God says, the time is not yet come for you to inherit their land, because their iniquity isn't yet full. And the greatest fullness of their iniquity is in rejecting the grace of God. Rejecting the truth that he makes known. And he does that through the famine. He does that through bringing the people to taste of what he has. He does that through the plagues that come upon the nation of Egypt to, re to reveal that God is greater than all the other gods as each one of those plagues are focused against a local deity 
And God demonstrates himself greater than that deity. It's the story of God bringing the children uh, through the river so that all the nations can hear what God has done, which sets up the story of the battle of Jericho and how Rahab hears and says, everyone knows about what you have done. These are all the workings of God to accomplish his salvific purposes. I'm getting ahead of myself, but now we have review. B, it's a story of how the Egyptians had experienced the grace of God. Uh, I'm going to keep moving here because I'm running out of time. Uh, number one, the Egyptians had experienced the grace of God through the revelation in the form of a dream given to Pharaoh. Had they taken the revelation seriously, they would have had more than enough food. They could have stashed away food even as Joseph did. You see, everyone knew the story of the revelation of, of, of God, how Joseph was able to interpret that dream and said there's going to be seven years of, 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 of uh, plenty and it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph says to Pharaoh, you need to gather up enough food in the seven years of plenty to see you through for the seven years of famine. And Joseph is able to save up enough food not only to feed all the Egyptians, not only to feed all the Israelites, but to feed people coming from the uttermost parts of the earth to find grain in the land of Egypt. That's how much food that Joseph is able to set aside in seven years, that he's gonna be able to feed the world. That's how much plenty there is. Now if you step back from that, you realize that the, 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 the uh, Egyptians know the story. The Egyptians know what Joseph is doing. And yet these Egyptians don't set aside their food. They don't take advantage of the seven years of famine. They could have done what Joseph did, but they didn't. Because they really didn't believe the <coughs> dream and its interpretation. <coughs> and as such, they rejected the grace of God. Two, the Egyptians had experienced the grace of God in the ministry of Joseph. The Egyptians had experienced the grace of God in the instructions that they received. <coughs> Joseph told them what to do. They didn't do it. The Egyptians experienced the grace of God in seeing the benefit of following God's word. They ate of the food that God provided. They saw that God's revelation was true. They saw that Joseph was faithful. They saw the hand of God at work. The Egyptians experienced the grace of God in their lives being preserved. They were kept alive by his grace, where otherwise they would have starved to death. But God was good to them. They literally tasted of the grace of God in the food that they ate. See, it's a story of how a majority of the Egyptians rejected the grace of God. They forgot what God had done for the Egyptians. Exodus 1.8, now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
doesn't mean that he never heard of Joseph. It's saying that he had no relationship to Joseph. He was not like the Pharaoh who raised Joseph up to a place of power that said to Joseph, Joseph, there's nobody like you. I'm going to put everything under your hand. You're going to be second in the command in Egypt. And everything you say, we're going to do. But then there rose up a king and said, oh, who's that, Joseph? Why in the world are we going to listen to this foreigner? Why in the world do we want to have somebody from another nation be ruling over us? And so he rejects Joseph, and he rejects what God is doing. Verse uh, and, uh, uh, number two, so the king conspired to keep them in bondage. Let's go back to verses eight and nine, one above that. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. They've, they've grown too powerful. Rather than see the grace of God, rather than to see what, what obedience to God does, rather than seeing that this is a unique people upon whom God has his hand, instead say, Now look at these people. They've grown too large too fast. They're a problem. Number two, so the king conspired to keep them in bondage. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. So now this king says, we want to keep them under our, our thumb. We want to keep these foreigners here, and we want to keep them in bondage. So let's act shrewdly so that these foreigners will remain here and they can't get away. This is long before the Pharaoh that rises up. Okay, number three. Of course, God would deliver them in the Exodus. It's an interesting side note that the king saw that the Israelites were increasing, but never thought that they could escape without the help of other nations coming to their aid. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies. The king thought, if I'm attacked from the outside, if there are our nations that come against Egypt, well, that just might provide these Israelites a way out. If a mighty nation comes and starts fighting from us from the outside, then these Israelites might rise up in rebellion and join the outside force, and together they are going to overpower and conquer us. They were never viewed as a threat in and of themselves. They never got to such a, an entity that that by themselves, the king thought, now they're, they're bigger and mightier than us. No, 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 no. Uh, they were never that, that, that size. We're talking about Egypt here. We're talking about a minority within a majority. They did not anticipate, the king did not anticipate what a mighty God can do. That how Israel could be delivered without the, the help and aid of a foreign nation. 
They were not going to form a political alliance. They were not going to band together with nations round about Egypt and fight from without and within. But a mighty God was going to take this relatively small group of people and deliver them from the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that time. How God is going to reveal himself in his power and his might. Number seven. The point of this exercise tonight is to realize that God works in the lives of his people not only for their own benefit, but also is working out his purpose for others and eventually the whole world. So these stories are not just little moralistic stories to teach us how it would be nice if we lived, but to teach us that how we live affects not only ourselves, but future generations and ultimately the world. We must read, strive to read the Bible with the meta-narratives also in view. And we must seek to understand our own lives in God's meta-narrative. This is the greater use of application. Okay? So that now I understand that personal righteousness is not just about my happiness. But in my obedience to God, I achieve something that's bigger than just me. Something that's bigger than just God making me happy or God making me rich or God elevating me. But it is God at work in the world. Our lives fit into a schismatic or plan. Uh, I could have just used the word plan, but schismatic means a whole lot more. <laughs> but if you don't know the word, it doesn't mean much. So it's planned, but it's bigger than that. Okay? It's an it's a intricate plan. And it's a plan that reveals how things work. Uh, so our lives fit into this greater arching sovereign plan that God has detailed and purposed from before the foundation of the earth. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, your life fits into this plan. The plan of God for the world. For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. And the good works that we are performing fit into an overarching plan of God in which he's accomplishing his purpose down through the ages. Our lives fit into the narrative of redemptive history. Man, I'm going so fast, I'm getting through this because I thought I wouldn't get through it tonight. Well, I must have talked awfully fast because it's quarter of. So I can slow down. Our lives fit into the narrative of uh, redemptive history. That really should be meta-narrative of redemptive history. The, the big, big story. The decisions we make are not just about our personal happiness and welfare. The obedience that we manifest to God is used positively to accomplish his salvific purposes. All right? So I have three stories here. Three uh, contemporary, contemporary, broadly based, post scriptures, okay, of little decisions, little things that affect others. For example, A, the obedience of a Sunday school teacher 
There's the story of the persistent Sunday school teacher that led Dwight L. Moody to the Lord. I don't know if you know the story of Dwight L. Moody, but his uh, Sunday school teacher was persistent. <laughs> and uh, there's even a, well, I won't go into the story, okay? But it's a wonderful story. Read it if you don't know it. B, the faithfulness of an obscure pastor. Why does faithfulness matter? There's the story of the old primitive Methodist preacher who no one had ever heard of, who was faithfully preaching to an almost empty sanctuary on a cold Sunday night. Okay, Here's this old guy, ministering in obscurity. It's cold. It's wintry. It's snowy. And he decides that he's going to keep church open anyway. And he's going to preach to whoever comes. Well, hardly anybody shows up. When a 15-year-old boy was passing by, decided to go in to get out of the cold. He heard the message that night, look and live. And the 15-year-old Charles Haddon Spurgeon was saved. And I'm telling you that the faithfulness of that man fit into the story of redemptive history of how his life affected the life of a 15-year-old boy who was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and as a result, literally thousands of people came to faith. Note the chain. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon starts a school for pastors. Wrote the book, Lecture to My Students. It's a result of this, this pastoral college that he established and sent people out who then ministered unto the uttermost parts of the earth. This old, primitive pastor had an effect, literally, on the ends of the earth. His life story fits into God's purpose for the ages. The kindness and grace of a Christian couple. There is the story of a 10-year-old boy who was part of a large non-Christian family in the middle of the Great Depression. The boy's parents were poor and could not provide for their large family. But there was a fine Christian couple, Jeb and Nancy Walker, who had no children, reached out to the family in need and took in the 10-year-old boy to live with them. He worked on their farm, and in turn they provided and cared for him. They took him to church, taught him the Bible, and treated him like their own son. Eventually, the little boy put his faith and trust in Christ. He was the only one who was saved out of his large family. The little boy grew and was able to lead one of his sisters and one of his brothers to the Lord. He then married his wife, Lois. They had children and established a family of their own, whom they loved, provided for, and taught the scripture. One of their children was a little boy who came to faith as a child and grew up to be a pastor. That's the story of my father. My father was the 10-year-old little boy. And a couple saw the need that existed in his family. And this couple decided to take in this little boy who was my dad. And as a result of this couple and their love and their faithfulness, and taking in this child, my dad was saved. Through that, he had the opportunity to lead a brother to the Lord, 
a sister to the Lord. He grew up, was married, had three kids, I being one. I came to faith from the witness of my parents. And not only did I come to faith, but then my children came to faith. And two of them married pastors. What I'm saying to you is that the faithfulness of this one couple fit into a far greater framework of what God was doing. And how this one couple that decided to take in a 10-year-old little boy had impact upon generations. And I tell you that that is the marvelous blessing of being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just the blessing in my own life and your own life, but it has implications for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your neighbors, and ultimately, truly, the world. As there are people going out, as that even my son-in-law has gone to Tanzania, has gone to numerous places around the world. Suki was in Morocco. It actually reaches out to peoples and communities and nations. God is at work. And just as Joseph could not see where his faithfulness ultimately or excuse me, what ultimately his faithfulness would accomplish, neither can we see ultimately what our faithfulness is going to accomplish. What, what God is doing, okay? Those things are hidden from us. But I want you to see tonight that there is meaningful blessing in obedience and faithfulness to the Lord that goes beyond our own personal happiness and well-being. It actually serves the plan of a sovereign God and is instrumental in reaching a lost mankind. The decisions you make are affecting your children, are affecting your grandchildren. We need to read ourselves into the bigger picture. Not just the isolated story of, of Joseph, but we, we need to be able to look at the generational teachings of the scripture. How David's life affected Absalom. How David's life affected Solomon. How Solomon's life affected Rehoboam. We have to see what God is at work and achieving. Every church that has any age to it has multiple family generations in it, okay? If there's a, a church that, that's 50 years old, you're going to find core families of which you will see generations in them. Grandfathers, fathers, grandchildren, grandmothers, mothers. Grandchildren. Every church has these generational families, these, these kingpins, these individuals that are used to reach their community. Every church has that, that has any age. For that is the purpose of God. That's what God is doing. He's reaching the generations. He is reaching 
the world. The Bible is delightful as you read and understand that my life is actually fitting into a plan of God for the ages. God saved you for a purpose. God saved you for a reason. And your faithfulness means far more than you will ever understand. But God will use you. And he will use you to save the nations. Uh, number one. So here's the story, okay? The story of, of this Christian couple who, by their faithfulness, my dad is saved, and then his brother is saved, and then his sister is saved, and then, of course, has children, and I'm saved, and so on. Number one, it's also a story of God, how God uses poverty to accomplish his purposes. Okay? Um, there was a reason. Every bit as much as God's famine coming to the land of Egypt, there is a reason my dad was born into a family of poverty. More than they could ever realize but he was at work. And one day, my dad could give thanks for being shipped out. When, as a kid, as a 10-year-old, he didn't understand it. As a 10-year-old, he cried. As a 10-year-old, he didn't want to leave his family. But it was the grace of God. It was the goodness of God. It was a reflection of what God has done in the past. Number two, it's also a story of God, how God provides food for one who is needy, coming to a Christian family that God has raised up. Just as God had provided food for the Egyptians, God provided food for my father. But in ways that were far different than was anticipated. It's also a story of how he uses the actions that take place at a point in time to demonstrate his goodness to future generations. Namely, myself and my children and my great-grandchildren, one of whom was named Amy Lois, Lois after my mother. God's goodness to the generations. And we're going to read in 2 Timothy about the generations of Timothy. His grandmother, his mother, and now Timothy. That's how God works. Number four. It's a demonstration that God has plans that are bigger than just us. He's looking into the generations that come. He's looking into the world. He's saving us in order to save others. E, all of this fits into the meta-narrative of God reaching the world. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The Bible teaches us, as we all know, that there will be people saved from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The Bible says that the, the gospel is going to come to all nations. It comes to all nations two ways. It comes in God bringing the nations to us. We looked at that with uh, Pentecost. We see it tonight in the land of Egypt where God is bringing the people to this food. I mentioned last 
Sunday night that we live in a really unusual period of time in history in which the nations are coming to us primarily not for food but for education. And now how there are foreign students that are just flocking this land in order to come for education and in the second then coming for financial wealth. Okay, the entrepreneurs, the many uh, people that are coming to establish, you know, sheets filling stations and people that are coming here for economic poverty, uh, for ec 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 economic prosperity. But the point is they're coming here. They're coming here. We need to be faithful in reaching those that are coming here. And then Mark 13.10, which sounds very similar, but it adds one word. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. This is how God works. Before he brought judgment upon the land of Canaan, God made sure that the land of Canaan heard the gospel. He made sure that they tasted of the grace of God. Their sin was not yet full. They had not yet completely rejected. But God, in his sovereignty, made himself known. He said, they will not know me. My name, Jehovah, they have not yet known. But in the plagues, he will make his name known. And he made his name known not only to the Israelites, but to the peoples of the world. God, in his grace, makes his name known. We're told in the book of Romans that one of the ways that he makes his name known is through creation. So that all the world can see that there's a God by the things that are made. But even more than that, God sovereignly brings things to pass, both by scattering people to the nations and bringing the nations to his people. And in a combination of the two, the scripture says, before judgment comes, they will have heard. They will have heard. There's the grace of God. And we live in this wonderful time in which people are hearing. And people are being saved. And you and I are part of that if we know the Lord Jesus is our Savior. And I encourage you to read the Bible, not just in their isolated little stories, but in the bigger scheme of things. And realize we fit into that. And so God has a plan for your life that's so much bigger than you. And bigger than your family. But affects your community and affects your world through you, your descendants, and those whom you reach. May God continue on his sovereign course and let us rejoice in the things that are taking place. And in those times in which we look and we scratch our head and say, why? Why would God allow this little boy to be in a family that had no food and be taken from his family and forced to be lived with his other family so that he could be saved. Why is God doing what he's doing in our lives? People rejoice in whatever is taking place for a sovereign God is at work. That's why we can give thanks in all things. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are thankful that you have a plan. Uh, we thank you that, O oh Lord, you have ordained from the foundations of the earth the things that are taking place. You have promised us that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Uh, Lord, we know that verse, but it's so easy to, <laughs> it's so easy just to quote it and not realize what is being said when it says all things are working together. How we are a cog into a much greater machine. How you are orchestrating all the events of this world and how our life fits into that and is working together for good, for your purpose, for your ultimate will to be done on the face of this earth. Not just for our happiness, not just for our prosperity, but for your overarching purpose, to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make us like him and to affect our world. Uh, Lord, we delight in you. Teach us of yourself and teach us of our relationship with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.